Welcome to Crime Wire on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to Crime Wire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at denny at dennisngriffin.biz. That's Denny, D-E-N-N-Y, at dennisngriffin.biz. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982 or join in the discussion in our chat room. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Hi, Delilah. Hey, Denny. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you. Great. Well, before we start the show and and get into uh, introducing our guests, I just want to let listeners know a little bit about the Inside Lens Network, which we are a a group of shows, um, including this one, Crime Wire, Shattered Lives, Imagine Publicity on Air. We have almost 700 past episodes to listen to, and that cover such a broad range of topics. We've done author interviews, but most of them are highlighting crime, domestic violence, victims' rights, and we've, um, over the many years we've been on air, have had a lot of expert guests. Um, you even did a show about former mobsters, and then you did a show about writing, almost like a writing forum. So there's just search a little bit. You're going to find what you want, and uh, we're on with today's show. Uh, one time, Teamster President Jimmy Hoffa disappeared on July 30th, 1975, at the age of 62. He was declared dead in 1982 even though his remains have never been found. In addition to his role as a labor leader, Hoffa was known for his confrontation with Bobby Kennedy in 1957, while Kennedy was serving as counsel to the McClellan Senate subcommittee. They clashed again when Bobby became U.S. Attorney General following his brother John's election, and Bobby pursued or renewed his pursuit of Hoffa. In 1964, Hoffa was convicted of the attempted bribe of a grand juror and was sentenced to eight years in prison. He was also convicted of fraud later that same year for improper use of the Teamsters Pension Fund. In 1967, following three years of appeals, Hoffa began serving a potential 13-year sentence. However, in 1971, President Richard Nixon commuted Hoffa's sentence. Hoffa wasted very little time in taking action to get his union power back. Was his ego a flaw that led to his disappearance and death? A man who knew Jimmy Hoffa quite well is his former driver, Marvin Elkin. Marvin was with Hoffa the morning of Hoffa's disappearance and believes he knows what happened to him. We're pleased to have Marvin with us today. Marvin, welcome to CrimeWire. Thank you. Uh, Before we get into Jimmy Hoffa, Marvin, let's talk a little bit about you. And the first question I have for you is, who was Mario Pasquale? Me. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that came about, how you became known uh, as Mario Pasquale. When I was nine years old, I became a ward of children's aid, and I was put into a foster home with a Sicilian family by the name of Pasquale. Uh, the old lady who uh, ran the house with an iron fist, uh, she liked me. I wanted her to like me. And I arrived there on a Friday, and I had to register in the school in that area on the Monday. So it was decided that I would be registered under the name, their family name is Pasquale. So people would think I'm her real kid, which she wanted. And she told me, Marvin, Pasquale doesn't sound right, so she changed my name to Mario. So while I was there, I was known as Mario Pasquale, and a lot of people still call me Mario. Um. I, I neglected to mention the listeners now that you're you're a Canadian citizen, am I correct? Yes. So what we're talking about here took place in Canada. The, correct. Uh, the Pasquale. Canada. Okay. So you had obviously some issues uh, in your life as as a child, and you ended up in in this uh, foster home. Now, tell us a little bit about what life was like with this iron-fisted uh, Mrs. Pasquale running the show. What, what kind of lady was she, and what was she involved in? Uh, Mrs. Pasquale was many things. She was the type of person that ran the household physically. She uh, used to have me up in her room every night, she would call me from the dorm where I was with the other foster kids. To, she she lived in her bedroom by herself. The old man, Papa Pasquale, lived in the basement by himself. It wasn't even a finished basement. She treated him like a dog. And I would go up to her room, and she used to say to me, it didn't matter how I was that day, Mario, you're a very bad boy. Take off your pajamas. I used to take them off. She used to put me over her knee and spank me. And then she would make me lie. She'd make me lie on the bed, nude, on my face, and she would spend all night rubbing my rear end, saying, "You be a good boy now, Mario. Mama make it better." And uh, it was very. I felt very bad, but I knew it was the wrong thing to do. The spankings didn't hurt. She didn't hit me that hard. The rubbing my rear end did. Now, she also was a bootlegger bootlegging uh, whiskey and I used to deliver whiskey to different people sometimes on my bike also she was the type of person that I was there for two years I don't think I ever had one night without having spaghetti for dinner I can't remember any night not having spaghetti and she made enough spaghetti to feed an army and she was like this if you got hungry and you wanted to eat you could go down and make it whenever you wanted. And if you wanted her to make it for you, you could wake her up and she would do it. She felt that was one of the, her roles in life. She used to take me to church on Sunday, and she used to introduce me to her friends as her new bambino. So were you treated a little different than the rest of the kids? I mean, did she do Obviously, if you were in her bedroom uh, at night being spanked and... Uh, and, and letting her make it better, uh, she wasn't having the other kids up there. So were you were you, uh, no, you know, she treated didn't. a little better? I was treated differently, 
The reason being, as a kid, and I still have them, but uh, when I was nine years old, I was small. I was, I was about the size of a six-year-old, and I had very chubby cheeks. And she liked that. <laughs> she figured it made me look like a baby. And I was in the home with three other foster kids, all about the same age. They were much bigger than me, and she didn't treat them the way she treated me. She, she, if the, any, anybody got her line, she always had a strap in her apron pocket. And it didn't matter who, any of her own kids, which were all older than us, or uh, any of the foster kids, including myself. If you got out of line during the day, she would use the strap on you. What she did me at night, the first time she did it to me, it was on a Friday night, the first night I was there. And I, she told me I was a bad boy, and I didn't know what the hell I did. I couldn't remember doing anything wrong. So the next day on the Saturday, I was the poster boy for uh, good conduct. I was very careful. I watched myself very much, make sure I didn't do a thing wrong. Same thing happened. That's when I knew that this was something that was going to happen, no matter how I was. And the two years that I was there, it didn't matter if I had any of the child diseases or what. When she went to Italy to visit some of her family afterwards, she took me with to Sicily. And uh, there wasn't one night of the two years that I spent in that foster home that uh, I didn't go through that procedure where she stripped me, spanked me, and put me on my stomach, and she was rubbing my rear end all night. Uh, now, she had children of her own, and one of them was named Roy. Uh, Roy was her oldest. Told, yeah. Roy was Roy eventually became the number two man of the uh, mafia in the province of Ontario. He be, he was a very tough guy, ruthless, had uh, evil. I would say you you'd call him almost almost pure evil, and uh, he he was a lone shark, and did his own collecting, and was a very ruthless person. And uh, he became close to me because of boxing. I was scared not to be close to him. And he used to scare the hell out of me. And he told me, this was on a Friday that this first happened with uh, the old lady and myself. And it happened Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Monday, the oldest, the, the, the oldest daughter, Norma, was taking me to register me in the new school. And Roy came along. And I was walking with Norma. She was holding my hand. And Roy grabbed my shoulders and pulled me back to him. And he said to me, he said, if you say a word to a teacher or a social worker, what's happening with you and my mother, we will deny it. They will believe us. You will stay here, and I'll beat the hell out of you every night. And I knew he meant it. So that remained a secret between you and... Uh, Mrs. Pasquale and so forth, and never went any further than that. Never went any further. Um, now, while you were with Mrs. Pasquale, you got involved with some some what turned out to be bad activity. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about what you and some other of the kids did that ended up landing you in a reformatory. Uh because I was in that home, and Roy was well-known in the neighborhood as being a gangster, I was 11 at the time. I turned 11, and there was two older guys by the name of 
Les Irwin and Tommy McDermott. They were 14, and they decided to rob grocery stores. On Sundays, there was a lot of grocery stores owned by immigrants, and uh, during the summer, they would close down and they would take turns of one store being open and the rest of the area closing so they could take their family to someplace for a park or whatever. And these guys got the idea of breaking into the stores and grabbing the money. And they took me with them because I was small. They would open a, break a window open in the basement, push me through. I would make my way upstairs and open the door, and they would go in and they would search for the money. The money was always the same thing. There was no night deposit boxes in those days. The money was always hidden in a sugar can or in a cereal bowl, something like that. The take was always pretty well the same, anywhere from 40 to $50. They would find it, and they would split it up, and they would give me $5, which was enough a lot of money for an 11-year-old kid in those days. Uh, uh, one day, Byron, one day, yes. Yeah, I was just going to say, we, we ought to tell the audience we're talking about those days. We'd be talking 1945. 1945 is right. Okay, go ahead. So uh, one day I came with a baseball team that I was playing on. And we went to a restaurant called the Lakeview Restaurant in our area. And we ordered... We went to two teams, and we ordered 18 ice cream cones. It was a nickel apiece, meant 90 cents. I had been in a movie previously, and I saw my hero, Humphrey Bogart, buy some drinks for some people, throw some money over the counter, and said, keep the change. I thought that was real cool. So when they gave us the ice cream cones, it was 90 cents. I said, I'll take care of it for everybody. I put my hand in my pocket, pulled out my money that I had at that time. I had about $25. I had changed it all into $1 bills, so it looked like a big roll. I threw a dollar over the counter, which for the 90 cents, and I said, keep the change. It made me feel very good. <laughs> Somebody noticed it. Just like, just like Bogart. Exactly, just like Bogart, which is what I wanted to do. Which, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, Somebody noticed it and reported so, it to the police. So two days that, later, two days later, I was walking down the street, and a cruiser pulled up, and it was two police officers who used to be at the house an awful lot to see Roy, by the name of Tong and Perry. Tong was known as the toughest cop in the city at that time, and uh, years later, he got uh, bumped off by a couple of gangsters. But he came up and he said, uh, Mario, get in the car. I said, geez, I'd like to, but I've got to go and change. I'm going to a baseball game. They said, get in the car. I got in the cruiser, and they took me to a place called Claremont Police Station. They brought me in, and they said, empty your pockets. I did, and they saw the money, and they said, okay. Where did you get all this money, Mario? I said, from my paper route. They said, we checked it out. Your paper route, you get 50 cents a week, and you give half of it to your foster mother. This came from someplace else. Now, you were breaking into stores. Told me that you were breaking into stores. I said, no, I wasn't. 
He took a roll of quarters right out of his pocket. And he said, Mario, do you know what this is? I says, yes, it's money. He says, do you know how much money? I says, no, I don't. He says, it's $10 in quarters. That means there's 40 quarters. He says, if you can tell me for each one of these quarters that you didn't do it, I'll let you go home. And he said, did you break into storage? I said, no, and he hit me in the head. Then he said to me again, did you break into storage? I said, no, and he hit me in the head again. Then a third time, and I said, yes, I did. I broke into storage. So he said, okay, now, we know that you couldn't have been by yourself because there's a lot more money taken than you have. Who are you with? That was one thing that I was scared to do was tell him who I was with. So I told him, I know I was alone. I was by myself. He spotted that I wouldn't talk. So he said to me, he says, listen, you had a right to break into those stores. Those people make enough money. I said, I had a right? He goes, that's right. He says, I'm going to let you go home. But I'm going to tell you this. Don't tell your brother Roy or the guys you were with that I picked you up because then they won't take you anymore. So you just go ahead and do your thing, and I won't bother you. It's okay. I was leaving, and on my way home, I said to myself, everybody's got this guy wrong. This is a great guy. A few days later, we went into a store called Becker's. Variety, nothing to do with Becker's Milk. They weren't even around in those days. It was owned by a Jewish family called Becker's. We broke into that store. I was sitting on the counter reading a Captain Marvel comic book. The two older boys, Les and Tommy, were going through the store to find the money. In comes Detective Tong and a few coppers. And he says, hello, Mario. I says, hello, Detective Tong. How are you? The other guys got scared. I said, don't get scared. He said it would be okay for us to do it. So Les Herman said, who said it? I said, Detective Tong, when he picked me up the other day, he told me it's okay for us to do it. He says, why, you stupid little bastard. And he took a run at me, but they stopped him. Then uh, we were arrested, and we went to court, and we had a judge by the name of Waysburg who took a strong dislike to me. I think the reason might have been he didn't. He was a Jewish judge. He didn't like the idea of a Jewish kid going by an Italian name and uh, doing what I was doing. So he was always mean to me in court. Now, the trial took three days, and they kept us in a place called the Don Jail, not with the adults by ourselves in the basement, and they gave us a basketball to play with. And we used to play dodgeball, throwing the ball at each other and trying to get it out of the way. We did that to amuse ourselves. One day the ball hit me in the eye and I got a shiner. We were in court the next day. Judge Waysburg looks at me and he says, what happened to your eye that made you look so ugly? I says to him, I says, I was playing dodgeball. What's your excuse? <laughs> what, happened, what happened was this. The... Uh, Jewish Congress gave me a lawyer by the name of Oni Brown. They paid for it to defend me. I asked him just before the trial started, I said, what's going to happen to me, Mr. Brown? He says, well, you're at your age, it's your first offense. The most they'll do is give you a year in a boys' reform school. That's the most. You won't get any more. And I might even get you off with not going to reform school. Just get so many strokes of the strap, which you'll get over so many weeks at a police station. 
But he says, here's the thing. If you do go to a reform school, when you come out, doesn't matter how long you're there, how short a time, how long a time, you can't go back to the same foster home. I says, I can't? He says, no, you can't. You'll have to go to a different foster home. This himself, Christ sakes, this is going to be okay. It's my way out of the foster home and the abuse I was taking there from the old lady. So that's why I decided to uh, get the judge mad at me so he would send me to the reform school. When it came time for sentencing, you could only be in a reform school till you were 16. If your sentence was longer, then you were transferred after 16 to an adult facility. So Judge Waysbrick said, I'm sending the three boys to reform school till they're 16. I almost fell off my chair. I said to my lawyer, I said, Mr. Brown, what's that mean? He says, it means you're going till you're 16. I said, yeah, but I'm only 11. That's five years. You told me the most I would get would be a year. So he says, that's before you opened your big mouth. <laughs> so to my shock... Detective Tong stood up and he said, Your Honor, this isn't right. He's the youngest. I don't think he even knew what he was doing. And he's getting the longest term. And the judge says, No, he isn't. It's all the same. They're all going until they're 16. He goes, Yeah, but they're 14. They're only going for two years. He's 11. He's going for five. So Judge Wavericks said, Detective Tong, when you arrested these boys, were you doing your job? He goes, Yes, I was. He goes, Let me do mine. So then they took us to uh, a town called Bowmanville. We went to a very well-known reform school in those days called Bowmanville Boys Correctional Center. And it was a very tough place. At that time especially, what happened was Bowmanville had been a reform school for years. During World War II, they turned it into a prisoner of war camp. And then right after the war, which is when I went there, they changed it back to reform school. And the premier, who was a guy by the name of George Drew, decided to save time and everything. He would keep the same staff that took care of the prisoners of war to take care of us. And these were all rotten, no good, miserable, sadistic bastards. (laughs) And they were the ones that took care of us as kids. And uh, they gave us a very hard time. Punishment was always corporal punishment. And you got it for anything and they did everything to intimidate you. And that's how I got into boxing, was at the reform school. Um, okay, Marvin, so now you're, you get out of reform school at 16. You would st- uh, you're still keep no, in touch with I was Roy. 15. I was there until I was 15. When I was 15 okay. years old, a uh, parole officer by the name of Fern Alexander, who later on became the first female police officer in the province of Ontario, she was a parole officer. She got me out when I was 15. I was there for four years, and then I was put in her custody. She was my parole officer from 15 to 16, and she was very adamant in getting me out. What happened was she just applied to get me out. She had to take me before a judge to okay it. The judge talked to her and to me, and he says, here's his problem. His stepfather won't let him come home. We can't let him out. He has no place to go. She said, let me see what I can do. She took me back to Bowmanville. A few days later, she picked me up, and she took me back, and she said, I spoke to his grandparents, and he can live with them. 
So the judge said, I want to interview them. She said, you'll need an interpreter. They don't speak English. So they went ahead, took me back to Bowmanville. She picked me up a few days later, and the judge said, I spoke to the grandparents. Wonderful people, very nice people. I was impressed, but there's one problem. They won't be able to handle him. Every other word out of their mouth was saying he's really a good boy. They don't know who they're dealing with. She says, here's what I'll do. If he'll live with them, if you'll agree, and he said this to uh, Prince Alexander, if you'll agree to be his legal guardian besides his parole officer, then I'll let you release him. So he said to me, she said, okay. So he looked at me, and he was calling me by a real name, and he said, Marvin, do you know what a legal guardian means? I said, no, I don't. He says, it means that she's your parent. So she is your parent, and she's also your parole officer. So she has complete rule over you. You have to do what she says. If not, she has the right to punish you in any way she sees fit. So that's the way it's going to be. If, if that's the only way you're going to get out in parole. So we agreed, and that's what happened. Uh, so you got out. Now, eventually, you found your way to New York City uh, in 1952. When I was 18, what happened was 18. this. I, I was boxing amateur, and one of my other foster brothers by the name of Rudy, his name was Rudy Pasquale, but he fought under the name of Rudy Pascal. He, Roy, took him to New York to fight, to get into boxing there, because New York was the mecca of boxing in those days. And then he got a hold of me, and he said, why don't you come down here? I've uh, bought a house. I turned it into a boarding house. You can stay with us. And I got you a job as a sparring partner at Stillman's Gym. You'll be cleaning up the gym, helping them clean up the gym, and do a sparring partner and get you some fights. So... It sounded pretty good, so I made my way to uh, New York. I hitchhiked from Toronto to New York City and did it. But I needed to make a little more money. So through a contact at Stillman's Gym, I was able to get a job at the Copacabana nightclub owned by Lou Walters, Barbara Walters' father, as a busboy. And I uh, was a busboy. All kind of celebrities came, and there was one group that came in about four or five nights a week. It was Tony Salerno, Frankie Carbo, Linky Palermo, and Tony Provenzano. These were all mafia guys who were also associated with Mr. Hoffa. Now, these guys liked scaring the staff. They would, They knew the staff knew who they were. And they used to enjoy scaring them. I knew they weren't going to do anything. They were just there to have a good time. And although they scared people, they were good tippers. So when everybody ran away from them, I ran towards them. Because I knew that they would yell at me and try and scare me, but I knew they weren't going to do anything. It was just their way of enjoying themselves. And one day I was there, it was on a Wednesday, and Tony Salerno called me and he goes, Hey, little Jew boy, get over here. Now, they knew me also because they used to go to boxing matches and they'd seen me on some of my fights, as is what I thought. And they all knew I was Jewish because I wore the Star of David on my trunks and on the back of my robe. So he called me over. He says, uh, we spoke to Lou Walters. Friday's your last day here. I said, my last day? Why? I'm trying so hard to do a good job. 
He goes, yes, but as of Monday, you're going to be Jimmy Hoffa's driver. I says, I'm going to be what? He goes, Jimmy Hoffa's driver. <laughs> I knew Jimmy Hoffa by reputation, and it scared the hell out of me. So I said, I don't want to be Jimmy Hoffa's driver. He said, nobody's asking you. So, uh, <laughs> so I said, but I'm a Canadian. He goes, that's the whole idea. There was conscription in the States in those days, and Mr. Hoffa's driver had been drafted into the Army. They said, you being a Canadian, we don't have to worry about that. So that's it. Friday's your last day. They picked me up on Saturday and took me out. And they, you know, when you drove for Mr. Hoffa, you weren't allowed to wear a shirt and tie. You had to wear a jacket and a sport shirt because you wore a choker chain around your neck to show you were his slave. So they took me to a jewelry store and they bought me the choker chain, which I still have, still wear. They took me to a clothing store called Little David's and they bought me some blazers and some slacks and a coat and a hat and some sport shirts. And then they drove me to the airport where Mr. Hoffa comes in after being home for the weekends. He comes in, they showed me where he gets off, and they showed me pictures. I said, I know what he looks like. They showed me pictures anyway. You pick him up Monday morning. On Sunday, I was in my room, and I was terrified. So I phoned home to my mother, and I said, can I come home? I told her why. She said, no, you can't. Your stepfather won't let you come home. And then if you do come home, everybody will say that you were scared and you couldn't do it on your own. So do it. Take whatever they're going to do for you there. So I did on Monday. I drove to the airport. Mr. Hoffa came over to where he was. I drove. I had the... Uh, Caddy, the the, uh, the the teamster caddy, to drive him in. I pulled up and I got out of the car, and I said, "Good morning, Mr. Hoffa." He says, "Are you Marvin?" I goes, "Yes, sir." He goes, "You're off to a very good start, Mr. Hoffa, or sir. Remember that. You're off to a good start." So he got in the car and he said, "Pull over there." I pulled over, and two guys came out and they got in the back of the car with Mr. Hoffa. These were his bodyguards. So he said, Marvin, pull the car over and stop the car. Turn it off. I did. He says, now turn around. I turned around, and both guys opened their coats to show me they were carrying guns. He goes, Marvin, I have rules and cardinal rules. You break a rule, these guys will beat you up. You break a cardinal rule, you won't be around the next morning. He says, the rules are this. I don't want to hear a snowstorm, thunderstorm. I don't want to hear anything like that. You must never be late when you're picking me up. I don't like to be kept waiting. You must always be on time. And if, after you're driving me, conditions make us late, that's okay. But I must not be kept waiting. Cardinal rules are this. What you hear in this car stays in this car. If that doesn't happen, you won't be around the next day. So I understood. It didn't take me long. It took me a few days to settle in. I knew exactly how to do it, what to do, and I did the job. What um, some of the people, in addition to the bodyguards that would be in that back uh, with Mr. Hoffa, uh, now at that point he was not the president yet; he was the vice president, I believe, he was the, of the vice teamsters president of the teamsters. But everybody, up and but, he was the, 
but he was still of, of of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. But he was still the most powerful man in the union, even at that time. He was very uh, close. He was very close with Mr. Blankford, who was the Teamster lawyer. And who were some of the people, if you can tell us, that other than the bodyguards that you that used to be in uh, Mr. Hoffa's uh, car? Well, I drove people like uh, Don Vito Genovese, who was the uh, head don of New York State at the time, who had a reputation of being a very dangerous person, yet he spoke to me like he was my grandfather. I spoke, I drove Striancana, the head don of Illinois. He would be in the car at different times. I drove Albert Anastasia, the enforcer for Murder Incorporated. He would be in the car. And, of course, Corey Dauphin would be Tony Salerno, Frankie Carbo, Blinky Palermo, and Tony Fofamanzano. They would be in the car with Mr. Hoff at different times, and quite often they had meetings there and talking while they were in the car and I was doing the driving. Now, Don Vito Genovese had a reputation of being a very dangerous person, and I used to say to myself, it can't be so, because he would be driving, and Mr. Hoffa would yell at me, you should have stopped here or did this. He was, he was very gruff. And uh, Don Vito used to say to him, Jimmy, he's a very good boy. Don't yell at the boy. He's a good boy. So I said to myself, whatever I heard about this guy is all wrong. Then one day he was talking to Mr. Hoffa, and he said, Jimmy, that manufacturer that we're dealing with that makes the boys wear, he's cooperating with us, yes? And Mr. Hoffa said, no, he's not. He said, he got to go. The next day they found the guy dead. So that's when I said to myself, I don't care how nice this little guy talks to me, I'm not going to get him mad at me. <laughs> Good move, I think. Uh, so you you obviously were in a position because all these various people were at one time or another in that vehicle with the with Mr. Hoffa. So you you probably heard a lot. I'm I'm suspecting. I heard an awful lot, and I let it go in one ear and out the other ear. And uh, when I had to uh, go on the stand and tell what I know, I went to a lawyer who worked for the Teamsters by the name of Lyarovis, and he said, when you're going to be questioned, they're going to try and get you to to perjury, lie. They're going to know the answers when they ask you the questions. They have nothing against you, but in order to upset Hoffa, they will charge you with perjury if you lie. He said, but you got another problem. If you tell anything of what's going on, you'll get killed. So you're riding a real tightrope. So I got on the stand, and they swore me in. They said, uh, who do you work for? I said, the United Brotherhood of Teamsters. He says, and what do you do? I says, I'm a driver. He says, and uh, what kind of a truck do you drive? I said, I don't drive a truck. He says, what do you drive? I said, I drive a Cadillac. He says, do all drivers get Cadillacs? I goes, no, no, it's just me. He says, why? I says, because I'm the driver for Mr. James Hoffa. So he says, the Cadillac that you drive Mr. Hoffa in, 
there must be a separation between the driver's side and the passenger's side. It goes, no, nothing. He says, nothing at all? He goes, no, open. He says, well, what are they doing when they're in the back of the car? I says, they're talking. He says, what are they talking about? I says, I have no idea. He says, if you have questions, have you ever had the head don of New York State, Don Vita Genovese, in the car? I says, he's been in the car many times, but I have no idea what he does. Have you ever had Salvatore Giancana, the, the head don of Illinois, in the car? He goes, he's been in the car many times, but I have no idea what he does. He said, have you ever had Albert Anastasia, the enforcer of Murder Incorporated, in the car? He goes, been in the car many times, but I have no idea what he does. He says, well, they're in the car with Mr. Hoffman. What are they doing? I said, they're talking. He says, about what? I said, I have no idea. He says, you just said there was no separation. I says, I'm concentrating on my driving. They might have been talking baseball, football, boxing, girls. I have no idea. I just heard conversation. But what the conversation was, I didn't know. I was concentrating on my driving. They said, well, what happens if Mr. Hoffa says turn right or turn left? I goes, that I hear. Because you're dismissed. So it worked out okay. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, yep. Mr. Hoffa, you know, there have been movies made about him and so forth. But I'm wondering from your experience, what was his personality like? Was he kind of a fun guy, a lot of jokes? Mr. Hoffa? Or was he more serious? Mr. Hoffa was a very gruff individual. I never saw him smile once. He had a very tough interior and exterior. He Most of the time when he would tell me what to do, he would yell. He let the rule by fear, but he was a very gruff person. But he had some very, he was a, a very strong family man. He was a great believer in family. And he loved his family, and he loved his union. And one day, it was in July, I was driving him and taking him to the airport, taking him to LaGuardia. And he said, Marvin, in a little while, a couple of months, the Jewish high holidays are coming up. I goes, I know that, Mr. Hoffa. So he says, well, you'll be back home in Toronto with your family celebrating the holidays. Isn't that right? I goes, no, sir, I'm not going. So he says, what do you mean you're not going? to be with your family. I says, well, I've already had my two weeks vacation and the high holidays take a week, so I haven't got the time coming to me. And then I don't have the money to fly to Toronto and back. He got mad. He goes, you're a young single boy. What have you done with your money? I says, well, I bought a car. It's a used car. And when you're away, I take my girlfriend to Coney Island. I said, and it's okay for that, but I can't trust that car to take me to Toronto and back. So after I dropped him off, he said, I'll be very disappointed if you were not there with your family celebrating the Jewish high holidays. I went back to the uh, Union Hall, and the steward says to me, Mr. Salerno wants to see you. Tony Salerno was the liaison between the mafia and the Teamsters. He had an office right there. I came in. And he said, Marvin, tell my secretary the dates of the Jewish holidays. You're getting an extra week's vacation with pay, and we're paying your way by air to Toronto and back. I says, why? He goes, that's what Hoffa wants. I says, well, how do you know that? I just took him to the airport. He goes, Marvin, they do have phones at the airport. <laughs> so, so he was okay that way. He was... Uh, 
never smiled, never laughed, had completely no sense of humor whatsoever. So now in 1956, uh, your Hoffa's business in New York uh, came to an end, apparently, and he no longer needed you as a driver. So you moved back to Canada. I went to Montreal uh, to become the driver for the head man of the mafia for the province of Quebec, Mr. Victor Catroni. The mafia in those days were in Quebec were run by two brothers, Victor and Frank Catroni. Frank Catroni was an animal. Victor Catroni, the older brother, was a man of respect, and I was his driver. He lived in a place called the town of Mount Royal, and I used to pick him up. They got me an apartment, a room actually, in a nice hotel where I stayed, and I would take Mr. Catroni around to the different meetings at different places where I had to go. And uh, he, it was good driving for him because he was a... Uh, a man of respect was a gentleman. Then was, they told was, me. Did he have? Beg your pardon. I was just going to ask. What was it? Another Cadillac that uh, you were driving for him? Yes. Another Cadillac. Same color, black. Very similar to the one that I drove Mr. Hoff in. Then after a year, uh, they told me there was an opening in Toronto. I could come back and work for the Teamsters in Toronto. I And they would take care of me, get me a place to live, and so forth. So I figured to myself, this means I'm going to get a promotion. I was all excited. I phoned my mother. I said, I'm coming back to Toronto, and I'm going to be getting a promotion. This to what? I said, I don't know. But they told me I'm going to be moving into here. There's a job for me at the Teamsters in Toronto. I came to Toronto I had a meeting on a street called Madison Avenue, which was Teamster headquarters, and the Canadian president was a man called the Irishman, Tommy Corrigan. I went and I met with him, and I said, uh, I called him by his first name. He was an ex-fighter also. He says, Tommy, what am I going to do? He says, what do you mean, what are you going to do? I said, well, what kind of work am I going to do? He says, you're going to do the only thing you know how to do. You're going to drive and run errands. You can't do anything else. That's what you're going to do, and that's what I did. It was a big disappointment to me, but that's what they had me do. So you were then reaffiliated with the Teamsters, and uh, you you stayed with them. And now you got uh, as a driver, your wages were based on what what the over the road uh, truck drivers paid, were getting. I was paid just like I was a truck driver. Same salary, hourly pay as a truck driver. Okay, Same now, money. Mr. Mr. Hoffa ended up, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, doing some time in jail. He was The sentence was commuted, and he decided he wanted to uh, reinsert himself in the Teamster hierarchy and, and get his union back. Uh, uh, how was that greeted with the rank-and-file uh and, and also with other people, such as mob-type people, uh, regarding uh, what happened the advisability this. of... Mm-hmm. We, there was two things going on in Detroit at that time. There was the convention for the elections, 
which the uh, man that they recommended to be president was Fitzsimmons from Boston. And they were also building the Renaissance Center Hotel. I was sent down there to work for the convention and the people doing the Renaissance as my job, driver and an errand boy. Mr. Hoffa shows up in Detroit and lets it be known that he's going to be nominated from the floor and he's going to run for president. They took a poll. The poll showed that Mr. Hoffa would get 90% of the votes. The United States Justice Department, who hated Mr. Hoffa with a venom, told the Teamsters if Mr. Hoffa gets elected, they will give the Teamsters as much trouble as they can. But if he doesn't get elected, they'll give the Teamsters as much cooperation as they can. Mr. Hoffa was offered a fabulous deal. It's all in the records. He was offered still in offices in the States. He was offered 500000 a year to retire and go away peacefully. He turned it down. Everybody was very upset because they knew they would have trouble if Mr. Hoffa became president again. A few days later, I met with Mr. Hoffa for coffee. Strictly, I wasn't working for him at the time, strictly because of the fact that I had been his driver in the States, in New York. So that was the only reason we uh, met. And I told him, I said, Mr. Hoffa, there's a lot of people very upset with you, very upset with your decision. He says to me, he says, Marvin, my people will never harm me. You know, the Renaissance was being built. It's now a GM building, but it was a big, massive hotel, and the concrete was about six weeks away to be poured. And to pour concrete, you have to put down wooden slabs and then pour the concrete into that. Mr. Hoffa went missing. Next day, every carpenter, every Teamster carpenter in the state of Michigan, he could have been working on a high-rise building that had 200 suites or doing somebody's recreation room. It didn't matter what they were doing. They were called off their jobs and to get those wooden planks in and the concrete was poured right away. That's why I know that Mr. Hoffa is in the concrete in the Renaissance Center. I've said that many times. I've been on TV where I was interviewed, and I said that. Now, there was a meeting afterwards where they were having a meeting in Detroit at a hotel. The hotel was next to the Renaissance and you could get from one hotel to the next. You didn't have to go outside. You could go across a bridge on the roof. I was there doing my job, taking care of the executives, getting their coffee when they needed it, getting their meals, getting their cigars. That's what I was doing. And they had this meeting go on for five days. They were always in the, in the hotel. When it was over, they decided to have a change of pace and they would go across to the Renaissance to have breakfast. As we were all going across, when we passed the line, which took us from the, this hotel to the Renaissance, one of the head mob guys from Michigan said, 
say good morning to Jimmy Hoffa voice. So there's no question in my mind that that's where that's, that's where Mr. Hoffa was put in the cornerstone, in the concrete, in the Renaissance Central Hotel. So he's not in Yankees or uh, no, Giant no, Stadium. No, there's been no. reports. One guy said that Mr. Hoffa was in a his basement. The FBI called me and they said, "What do you think?" I says, "No." They tore up the guy's basement. He wasn't there. Another guy said they put him in his. He killed Hoffa and he put him in his driveway. I says, I don't know if he did or he didn't. I don't know who killed Mr. Hoffa, but I guarantee all he wants is his driveway dug up. They dug it up. He wasn't there. Another guy said he was on, he had a private farm, and Mr. Hoffa was buried in the farm. They asked me, what do I think? I said, he probably wants the land plowed for nothing. And they just said, <laughs> Mr. Hoffa wasn't there. I became very close to the FBI because I became an informant for them. So I was in touch with them all the time. Uh, let me let me ask you this. Uh, let's go back to 1975 when when Hoffa disappeared. Did the FBI question you then? Now here's what happened. They had movies taken. They had 24 hour surveillance on Mr. Hoffa, taking movies of what he was doing, of every movie made. But when he was picked up at the outdoor cafe, somebody either accidentally or was paid to fall asleep at the switch because they did not get the picture of Mr. Hoffa. They did not get the picture of Mr. Hoffa getting into the car or the car or the license plate of the car that picked him up. That was missed. That's a big, one of the big reasons the FBI was so interested in solving it because of that mistake they made. But they had me having coffee with Mr. Hoffa. So they picked me up, and they asked me what happened to Hoffa. And I told them, I don't know. I don't know. They said, who killed him? I said, I have no idea. So they put me in a hotel room, in custody, in a hotel room, and for three days I could eat, and I could use the washroom, but I couldn't sleep. Anytime I dozed off, they threw a bucket of cold water on me, and I just could not sleep. After three days, I broke. So I told them, I said, type up what you want, and I'll sign it. They said, you're admitting you know? I said, I'll admit to anything you want. I'll admit to being Jack the Ripper. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll say that I did the Brinks robbery. You name it, I did it. They said... Well, Marvin, we don't want you doing anything that you didn't say, that you didn't do. I said, you don't understand. I surrender. You win. I lose. I can't take it anymore. The state's attorney showed up, and he had been the district attorney in New York City. And he talked to me, and he says, I know that you didn't do it. I know how you are. So he says, if we take you to the London building, which was quarters in uh, Detroit for the FBI, if we take you there and give you a lie detector test, will you do it? I said, where were you three days ago? Certainly, but I have to get a little <laughs> sleep first. So I lied down, got a little sleep, went down, took the lie detector test, and I passed it with flying colors.
So they released you then? You were, that was the uh, the end of the interrogation? That was it. They released me. And uh, later on in life, I became an informant for them. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that, but before we do, let's uh, just finish up or uh, confirm uh, about Mr. Hoffa. Uh, there is no doubt in your mind that he was bumped off uh, because of his attempt to, to regain power in the Teamsters. Uh, probably, I'm assuming, some type of a mob hit. Um, and that that he's, his remains are in the concrete uh, base of the uh, Renaissance. Now, am I, am I correct that that's almost impossible to to dig that up or to, to try to search for him there because of they, the, uh, the whole building could collapse? Exactly. The greatest thing that could happen for me would be if they did find him in there. But the authorities have always said there's no way they could do it. They tried to see if they could uh, use special machines to look in. They couldn't do it. They couldn't take it down. The whole building would collapse. That Renaissance was it was like a city. It was so big. It still is. It's a GM building right now. So they couldn't do it. But there's no question in my mind, none, because of the circumstances that I saw that he's there. And so, yeah, you saw that, and then uh, that uh, comment that was made when you guys were crossing the bridge uh, about saying good said, morning said, to Mr. Hoffa. good morning to Jimmy Hoffa, boys. Um, okay, so now after uh, afterwards in your life, you you ended up becoming uh, uh, working for the police. I assume the Canadian police, probably at times, and the FBI as well. Uh, what with how did this? that come about? What, what turned you? Okay, I'll tell you what happened. In 1983, a man by the name of Keith Neal Cameron Proverbs who was probably the top con man in Canada, was operating, and I was his driver. And one of the people that he conned out of a lot of money was a very wealthy Jewish man called Joe Tenenbaum. He got the money because he got Wayne Tenenbaum convinced that they were going to do a certain deal, like a drive-in Max Milk. And he got a lot of money from them, and it was all phony, and he stole the money. Now, Tannenbaum's son-in-law was Bobby Kaplan, Solicitor General of Canada. So they went ahead, and Tannenbaum wanted to press charges against Proverbs for stealing the money. Bobby Kaplan explained to him that if we arrest him, we'll have to arrest you and your son because you were involved in a deal with him that was not a real deal. So you can't do that. But they wanted him very badly. So one day, two police officers, a guy called Bullies, another guy called Woods, they saw Neil, and they followed him to an apartment building, a very expensive apartment building in Toronto, called the Benvenuti. They went there with pictures. They saw both to the superintendent of the building. 
And they said, there's no Neil Proverbs here. They showed him the pictures, and he goes, oh, that's Neil Cameron. And they knocked on the door and told him they want to come in. When he came in, he was sitting there, sitting down with a shotgun on the floor next to him. When they showed the badges, he apologized, and he told them that he didn't know if they were police. He didn't think so. He thought they were guys coming to get him for somebody that he uh, took money from. When they couldn't press the charges on Neil Proverbs for the fraud because they weren't allowed to, they decided to go ahead and press gun charges against him because of the shotgun. It was strictly a fun game, but they did it. Neil Proverbs, who was a very, very, he's dead now, he died of AIDS. Neil Proverbs, who was a very shrewd con man, convinced the police that they would drop charges against him and he would give them the doings of a very wealthy Italian family in Toronto, very prominent, very wealthy, very powerful people. He said they were dealing drugs, which was a lie. And he was having meetings with these two police officers in a restaurant in downtown Toronto. And he was telling them stories, and they were telling him stories. They were telling him stories about they became so friendly with him. This was uh, he was getting this whole thing on camera, and it all got on TV. They were telling him stories how they carry a second gun, so if they kill somebody. That could it be trouble. They put the, they plant the gun in the guy's hand. They told him all sorts of stories like that. And he also had movies of me being with him and me talking to him. I was very friendly with some police officers who were boxing and me telling him stories how I'm going to pay off these police officers for him. And I had a judge that I could pay off for him. And he gave me some money for that. Then when it came to light that he was going to be exposing all this, my lawyer told me, get out of town. Get out of the province. Get out of the country if you can. I had some connections in Alberta, Calgary, Alberta. And I went down there and I was working selling aluminum siding in Calgary, Alberta. I was reading the papers every day. Neil Proverbs was telling stories, and they asked him, how did he meet these police officers? And he said he met them through Marvin Elkin. But I was in Calgary. It didn't bother me. And one day... Uh, Marvin? Yes. Marvin, I'm sorry, but we're completely out of time. We just got 15 seconds left. Uh, I'd like to have you back on again, if you're willing, and, and continue the story. I'm sorry we didn't get to cover everything, this but I've got to wrap it up right here. Okay, thanks so much for being here, Marvin, and sharing this absolutely fascinating story. And thanks also our listeners. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you very Bye-bye. much, Danny. Appreciate it.